From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy. Personal stories about food and the people behind them. Today on Schmaltzy, Hillary Rainsberg. Hillary is a writer, editor, and professional restaurant recommender, which she does from her post as the editor-in-chief of The Infatuation. She is a native New Yorker who still calls the city home. We'll hear Hillary's story and our conversation afterwards. Both recorded live at a schmaltzy salon hosted at the Jewish Museum on the Upper East Side. So it's 9.27 a.m. on a Wednesday morning in March 2016, and I'm very stressed that my taxi cab is not moving quickly enough up First Avenue. I'm stressed because I have received a very official letter asking me to be at the German consulate of New York at 9.30 And I know that Germans really don't like it when you're late. (laughs) Just after 9.30, my cab finally pulls up outside the embassy, and I rush up the elevator and find myself in a big room with windows overlooking the UN and the East River. And I turn and I see my family. We're all at the consulate this morning because we're becoming naturalized as German citizens. There's a law that says that Jews who lost their citizenship in Germany between 1933 and 1945 are eligible, as are their descendants, to reclaim that citizenship. And my grandparents were among those Jews who left Germany in that time. My family and I had no idea what to expect of this day or what the event would entail. But I start looking around the room and trying to figure it out, clocking the 30 or so other guests there. And I turn to my dad and I say, I think this is a Jewish event. (laughs) Just as I say that, a man at the front of the room in a suit starts speaking and reads off a piece of paper. He identifies himself as an official of the German government. And first, he essentially apologizes for the atrocities of the Nazi regime. He then says that this decision to become German citizens is one that supports a democratic, peaceful, and tolerant Germany, okay? He also says that he acknowledges that this may have been a difficult decision for us and our families, one that may have caused debate among our communities and among our families. My grandmother had passed away at the time, but my grandfather was still alive, and he supported this decision. He, like us, thought that if there was an opportunity to work and live in the EU, we should take it, and it being early 2016, We joked that if Donald Trump were ever elected, we'd have a place to flee. But this questioning of German identity as a Jew and connection to Germany was something I'd actually faced before. When I took German in high school, a friend who was the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors told me she thought it was incomprehensible and unacceptable to study German. And when I studied abroad in Berlin during college, I was met with similar reactions from some Jewish friends. But... I'd actually been brought up to be connected to German language and food and culture to some extent. My grandparents took me and my cousins every year on a trip to the German-speaking part of Switzerland, and we spent almost every Sunday at their house in Westchester. And their house, in addition to being really Jewish, was quite German, and German-Jewish, really, as they saw it. Whenever we came over, there was a manner of doing things that was often attributed to being German-Jewish. When we arrived, my grandmother Susie would have set the table just so, and of course there was a German word for this, 
Tischordnung, which literally means table order. And the food that followed was really German too. We'd have salami and sausages and gravlachs with mustard sauce and European cheese plates. If we had dessert, that was also really German. Sometimes there was a cold fruit soup. And if we were lucky, my grandmother Susie would make her Schwetzchenkuchen, which is a plum tart with the plums arranged in a really beautiful, precise pattern. After lunch, we'd often sit in the living room and look over old photo albums of my grandparents. And they loved to use this as an opportunity to tell stories. They'd talk about their time living in Mexico, and my grandfather, Kurt, would talk about his business trips to China in the 1950s and his experience being investigated by the CIA. But they also talked about their life in Germany. My grandfather was brought as a teenager in Cologne to a Nazi youth rally. He was brought by a non-Jewish friend, and there he heard a regional leader say that there was no future for Jews in Germany and that they'd be lucky to leave with the shirts on their backs. And he saw what was to come before really almost any other Jews did, and that started the process of him leaving Germany and allowed him to get his parents out as well. My grandmother's family left for England after Kristallnacht. My grandparents were not wistful for their life in Germany. They were so grateful to be in America and for their life here, and they were so grateful to have made it out when so many others, including some of their extended family members, did not. But still, German was their language, and it had been their homeland. My grandfather, who loved genealogy, traced his family back to the German region in the 1700s, which is before Germany was a country anyway. I think that for a lot of Jewish Americans, when they hear German, it is still the language of the Nazis, the language of Hitler. I have been told that the language is ugly and scary and severe. And I do understand where that comes from. But when I hear German, I also hear my grandparents and my family. I can hear my grandfather in his deep voice and German accent picking up the phone and saying, hi, Hillary. And I can also hear myself as a kid learning to say 126, which is the number 126, which is the room that my grandparents stayed in on our trip to Switzerland every year. They stayed in the same exact room. About a month after that day at the consulate, the physical passport came in the mail. At about the same time, it became clear that my grandfather was in his final days. And he passed away that April at 99 and a half years old. And when he died, I thought a lot about his legacy. And I thought a lot about how much he loved sharing his stories with us through those photo albums, through hundreds of emails that he wrote into his 90s. And I thought about how important it was to him that those stories get passed on and shared. I'll be honest, the passport itself has not been that useful in the years since I got it. In fact, when flying through Frankfurt on a connection a couple of years ago, the agent was very confused as to why my German was so bad if I had a German passport. But I'm really glad that I got the passport. And that's because it has been this invitation to tell my family's stories. So that is why whenever I pack for a trip and put my things in my bag, 
I put the German passport in there, whether or not I think I'll use it. And if I get lucky, I will get a chance to use it as an opportunity to tell my family's story. Hillary, thank you once again for sharing your story. It was really beautiful. Thank you. We are both native New Yorkers. I love when I find other ones. Yeah, people often tell me that they're surprised that I'm not crazier as a native New Yorker. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. We all have, you know, maybe we're just better at hiding it. Or less crazy. Yeah, I don't know. A calm, cool, and collected thing they attribute to being a native New Yorker. You've kind of like had things coming your way for your whole life. We're coming up on spring. I think my favorite time as things are starting to open back up. So is there anything you're really looking forward to? It's so interesting because I would have said in the past, I'm excited to eat on patios and eat outside. But like, I've actually been doing that all winter. just in sad, (laughs) in like sad huts. So post-pandemic, it's an interesting, or mid-pandemic still, um, it's an interesting question. But I do love eating outside on the street in New York. I don't think that gets old. And finding new, at the infatuation, we call it like secret patios is something that we always like to track. So what are the places that you wouldn't know that they actually have a really beautiful garden in the back? So I'm excited to update that list and and go to some of them. Is there a preview that you're going to give us now? One of my favorite hidden ones is Saturday's Surf Shop in Soho has a back garden that you can have coffee in. It's like the greatest place to have a little coffee meeting. I think it's still open. I used to go there all the yeah, time. It has like the bleachers mm-hmm. kind of. Yeah. yeah. You would never know about it. Only the native New Yorkers yeah. do. But <laughs> we'll share. I'm very curious, like what comes to mind when you think of German food in New York? Is there a place that is a, like a go-to for you? The, the one place that my aunt loves to get um, sausages from for, she likes to get them for a Hanukkah party, is place Schaller and Weber that's been around for uh, over 100 years yeah. probably. So that's the one that I experience. I can't say I experience a ton of German food outside of that. I think you see maybe influences in other restaurants across the city. But I don't think I really seek it out as a super popular cuisine. I don't think it's... I mean, there's beer gardens and stuff, but I don't eat a ton of German food in New York. (laughs) I think it's open for someone to come in and do something. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I relate to the Jewish food, too. I think, like, the bagels and lox is definitely... We had our version of it, but I feel like there is that connection to family through that for me, too. Very cool. Well, speaking of family, you touched on this in the story and kind of how your grandparents felt about being German and being Jewish and both of those identities, which is maybe something that a lot of other people hadn't come across. I would love for you to share a little bit more about how they thought about it. I don't think they actually felt the conflict in the same way that I talked about because they that hyphen was important to them. Like German-Jewish was the thing. I think they associated those things together. They were really interwoven and there was a long-standing German-Jewish community that went really far back and they felt connected to that. And when they came to New York, I think German-Jews who were already settled here helped them and they felt connected to that. They then wanted to help refugees from other countries, Jews who were fleeing other countries. They helped some Russians who fled in the 90s. And so, but the real thing was the connection to the German Jewish culture that went pretty far back, I think more so than like the German without the Jewish. I loved when you described your grandmother's table and how orderly that was. But I think about my own family and it's like the exact opposite. Mm. I think that there is... I don't know if I would call it a stereotype. I think it's kind of 
something that maybe other Ashkenazi Jews would heard that it's like sometimes the family gatherings are like a little chaotic. Like they're very loud. I think, can anyone relate to that? And sure, there were some things in place, but it was really just like a lot of people and it was just like putting things down where they needed to go and it, it wasn't organized. So when you went into maybe your other friends' homes or when you, if you were exposed to that kind of Jewish identity that was different from your German one, did you come across that? I did. Yes. The way of doing things was also very orderly in terms of like an expectation to sit up straight and things like that. I I think there are some Eastern European Jewish foods that I actually never experienced. My mom's family does come from more of the Russia region, but they were not particularly cooks. And so, (laughs) so we had a lot of that German food. I actually remember trying Kugel for the first time at someone else's house, like when I was in college and I had heard of it, but I actually didn't really know what it was. So that was an interesting one. But I liked the, you know, the, the looser, like I more, slightly more chaotic experience too. And I think over time, our, our holidays, as, as our family's grown and blended with like other families who are Jewish and not, we've calmed down a little, <laughs> which is nice. I look forward to having more calm family <laughs> gatherings, for sure. Were there other elements like of German culture that your grandparents introduced you to or that you were drawn to? Like, did they play music or show you films? They did really like to talk about different pieces of culture. My grandfather was very obsessed with keeping lists of everything. And so he had a list of his favorite movies, favorite museums, favorite streets okay, in wow. the world. Um <laughs> They weren't actually, I don't know that really any of them or many were German. Some might have been. But I've been interested in in learning about the country. I mean, I think there are some great German artists post-war that I really like. And I think based on my knowledge of the country and the history, I felt connected to their work and in understanding it. It resonated with me because I had studied the stuff that they were reacting to. Were there ever instances where they played down their Germanness? Or was it always something that they led with, typically? I don't think they really played it down because, as I was saying, I think the German-Jewish connection was so strong to them. And I think that like that German-Jewish-American thing has, it doesn't really exist anymore in a younger generation because most of the people who associated it with are probably older or, or not around anymore. And so I think that they came and found in New York actually a fairly vibrant German-Jewish culture that was now in New York. My grandfather worked for a German-Jewish company for years and those were people who'd been here for longer so they actually felt really connected to it i think it's in my generation that it was less understood that that was a thing okay i have one last question or two about your story i'm intrigued by the yearly visits to the swiss alps can you bring us there a little bit and and is it more like the sound of music i think it was more grand hotel budapest than (laughs) sound of music um That actually was kind of what the place that we would go looked like. and Or it had that kind of like old-fashioned energy and formality. So we did go skiing and went into the town. But at the hotel that we stayed at, and again, same hotel, same room that my grandparents stayed in every year, the dinner was included in the hotel. And so we always went to that every night. And there was a dress code, which was to wear a suit. So you would go skiing and then wear a suit to dinner. And that was like what you did. And no one questioned it. Um, we'd sit around in the lobby afterwards. It was fun. In retrospect, I'm like, this was 
seemed so wild at the time. It was just kind of what we did. And it was something you looked forward to every year. Yeah, absolutely. And my cousins and I, I mean, we were all kind of kids running around like crazy. And there was like a, there was like a pool table and a arcade in the basement of the hotel. And my cousins would, I don't know, be making friends and like causing mayhem to some extent when we were like finally let out of the formal dining room part of the, of the evening. Were there any like iconic dishes that were served in this hotel? There was a, <laughs> there was, no, yeah, I mean, there, there was definitely like a, a very runny cheese that you could have for dessert. And I loved that. And I am often mocked for like not always loving dessert sweets, but I love to have cheese for dessert. And I think I learned that there. And there was a man who was like the, I don't know, like host waiter person who would make beef tartare and like he but you couldn't like he could only do it for like so many people per night and so it wasn't like you had to kind of like woo him into doing that for you so was your family successful sometimes yeah we, I okay. think like once a, once a trip we'd get okay. it and like maybe okay. have to share one or something but yeah sounds fun so obviously like food you know was something that was, was memorable to you at a young age and something that made an impression on you and now it's kind of where you make your career. And so you're the editor-in-chief of The Infatuation. For anyone who might not know what The Infatuation is, would you mind like sharing with us what it is in your own words? Yeah. Um, we are a restaurant discovery platform, and we primarily write re- restaurant reviews and restaurant guides in cities across the country and restaurant dining guides in cities around the world. And in cities like New York, L.A., Chicago, Miami, a whole bunch of others, we employ full-time writers who are really restaurant critics um, who spend their days and nights eating in restaurants and writing about them. Sounds fun. It is. It is very fun. It it is hard work. I think everyone thinks it's like all fun, but sometimes you have to go to a restaurant that's like quite far away on a Tuesday night and you have to find someone to come with you. It's, it is hard work as well as being fun, but it is mostly a lot of fun. I read that you were one of the first employees. So what was it like in the very early stages of the infatuation? Yeah. I mean, it was three of us sitting in a room on St. Mark's place in an office shared with two other companies there was like one towel in the bathroom that I'm like, did anyone ever change it? I mean, it was really startup. Um, it was really startup life. And we were out at restaurants every night. We were kind of just like hustling around, writing newsletters to go out after dinners. And I think we've, you know, we've professionalized and no one's writing newsletters at midnight anymore. But it's been really great to bring people on and find writers. A lot of our writers, most of them were not professional food writers before or actually even professional writers before, but just people who had an amazing voice and a passion for restaurants and were talented writers in their own right. And my favorite thing is helping to find those people and give them a platform. And we have writers who were comedians before. We have a writer who was a hair colorist. We have an amazing group of people who've kind of done it all in previous lives. So that's been my favorite thing is finding those people and letting them write. So just to get a sense, like how big is the company now? I think something in the range of 75 people now. Okay. So we're growing. We're in nine cities with, with more to launch. We have guides around the world. And so creating content everywhere and just trying to trying to reach more people and keep up with all the openings. I think the pandemic has been a challenge. There's so much turnover, so much change in the restaurant world that we are just trying to serve the audience and tell them what's new, what's good, what's changed, yeah. um, which is a, a big task right now. Speaking of which, what do you think the state is of Jewish food in New York now? And, and do you see any like trends or new phenomenons happening? 
I think it's really exciting. There have been a couple of really exciting openings over the past couple of years, and most of them are doing something new and that it's not something we've seen in New York before. Most of them, I think, are taking old ideas and blending them with new ones. Like there's a place, uh, Edith's in, in Brooklyn, that I think like has the some of the old Ashkenazi dishes, but also is blending it with some Middle Eastern flavors and some flavors from other parts of the U.S. And I think everyone's doing something that's kind of a hybrid. Like we have people who've done Mexican Jewish things, and there are a lot of amazing Israeli restaurants that are doing food that is Jewish in that it's Israeli, but also kind of Middle Eastern. And so I think it speaks to just kind of where Jews are in the world today, which is everywhere and multicultural. And I think people are drawn to that of something that's new and inventive and tells someone's story. And do you think that's helping to like change people's perception of what Jewish food is, what it can be? I think so. I think the influx of Israeli restaurants has had a huge impact on that. That was, I think, the really easy thing for people to see that Jewish food isn't just bagels and locks, which I think we're past that at this point. Look, I love bagels and locks. Like, <laughs> let's keep that, keep at it. But yeah. I think that has had a really big impact. Yeah. Do you ever think about opening your own restaurant? It's not something I've, I have plans to do. You never okay. know. Um, <laughs> but I think if I ever did, I'm always just ex- interested in something that's a hybrid and that's new and that's inventive. So... I don't think that I would kind of look to the past fully. I I would definitely want to take inspiration from my culture, but also like the cultures that I've mixed with. And even like my grandmother also grew up in England and we have cousins in Israel. And so like, you know, I spoke about the German side of things, but even, even within our mix, there's kind of people from everywhere. So if I were to ever do anything, I think I'd want it to kind of blend that and things that I've experienced through travel and, have a big mishmash of everything. <laughs> cool. Well, keep us posted. Okay. What happens. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. For sharing your story and chatting with us. Um, it was a true pleasure. Thank you. That was Hillary Rainsworth. Thank you for listening. I'll meet you back here next week. Until then, head to jewishfoodsociety.org for family recipes and stories from around the world. Malti is a production of Jewish Food Society, made with love in NYC. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get this show, so you don't miss any of the stories. Schmalti is produced and edited by Gal Shaya and Particle 3. Our executive producer is Nama Shafi, and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. This episode was recorded live by Daniel Block. I'm your host, Amanda Dell. <laughs>